is where things really kick into high gear. So this morning, we're going to spend just a moment and we're going to remind ourselves of what happened up to this point, and then we're going to get started with some very familiar uh, parts of the Acts story. We're going to look this morning at the conversion of Lydia, as well as the Philippian jailer and that whole story, and that's going to be familiar passages to us. But before we do that, let's just remember for a moment of what's happened up to this point. We remember that Paul and Barnabas have parted ways. Paul has gone up through Derby and Lystra again with Silas. Barnabas has taken Mark and gone back to Cyprus. And now Paul has gone back to the areas that he's been before, but he has the intention of going eastward into Central Asia from, uh, through Bithynia, from Mysia through Bithynia. Now he goes back to Lystra, and in Lystra, this man Timothy joins him. He, Paul is so impressed with the spiritual maturity of this man Timothy that he invites him along with ministry in his, in his ministry with himself. And so Timothy joins him, and then we begin this section that we talked about last time briefly, one of the three we sections of Acts. The section in which the, all the pronouns switch plural pronouns. So that, the, that what that tells us is that the writer, the narrator, is now narrating events that he was there for. So now we have this team of four missionaries, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And that's where we're going to pick up. Here in verse 11, Paul has now received the Macedonian call. Remember, the Holy Spirit would not allow him to go eastward into Asia, into Bithynia but instead the Holy Spirit was redirecting him. was not allowing him to go that way. We don't know how, but the Holy Spirit was not allowing that. But then all of that is confirmed with the Macedonian call, the vision that Paul has of the Macedonian man beckoning him over into Macedonia. So let's pick up there from verse 11. We've got a big passage of Scripture, and it is familiar to us, so I'm going to not read through it before we begin. I'm just going to begin here in verse 11. From verse 11, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to... Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So they're, they're now in Philippi. We're familiar with Philippi. Not too long ago, we studied through the book of, Phil, of Philippians, and we talked great length about the city of Philippi, a Roman colony, which meant all the citizens of Philippi automatically were Roman citizens, which was a big, big deal in the Roman Empire. So there's a lot of Roman loyalty there. Of course, there's a lot of paganism and idol worship. And so they come here to Philippi. And Luke says that they stay here for some days. Now verse 13, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And so Paul is going to do his uh, normal custom here. When Paul comes to a city, he's going to begin speaking the Gospel to those who he finds are seeking God. That's where Paul always begins. He seeks out those who are themselves seeking God. Usually that means he goes to a synagogue if there's a synagogue there. There is no synagogue in Philippi. In order to have a synagogue, what was needed was ten Jewish male heads of household. And so there weren't ten male heads of household that were Jewish here to have a synagogue. And so the Jewish custom of the day was this. If there was no synagogue, then on the Sabbath, God's people would assemble outside in a public place near a source of water. The water was used for their ritualistic cleansing. And so knowing that this is the Jewish custom and knowing that there's no synagogue here, Paul goes down to the river. 
as Luke says, supposing that he's going to find some people there worshiping God. And so he goes down to the river. By the way, that's where the song, Down to the River to Pray, you know that song, Let's Go Down to the River to Pray, that's where it comes from because that's what Jews did. If there was no synagogue, they went down to the river to pray. And so he goes here supposing that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So he gets here and finds that there's not only not ten Jewish male heads of household to have a synagogue, but he finds that there's not even any Jewish males there. That it's all females that have gathered together. And as I think through this, I think what a temptation that must have been for Paul to become disappointed. After all, why did he come to Macedonia? What brought him to Macedonia? The Macedonian man. And he gets here and finds that there's not even a man here that's gathered for prayer. So how disappointing it must have been. We know the differences between the view of women in those days and the view of women today. Paul, in addition to all that, Paul was a Pharisee. And so for decades of his life, Paul was taught that a Pharisee prays this prayer three times a day. Lord, I thank You that I am not a Gentile. I thank You I am not a slave. And I thank You I am not a woman. Paul prayed that for three times a day for decades. And here he finds only women to minister to. I, I imagine that there was a temptation for Paul to become disillusioned. Maybe we got this whole Macedonian call thing wrong. Maybe we, Bithynia is really where we need to be. Because what I'm finding in Philippi is not exactly what I expected to find. You know, that's often true as we work in the kingdom of God. Working for the kingdom of God is almost never what we think it's going to be. It's almost never as glamorous and as respectable as we think it's going to be. We often have these ideas about what God would have us to do and how all of that's going to work out in our lives and what a glamorous thing that's going to be. And oftentimes it turns out to be not the case at all. If you doubt this, then let me just um, tell you you should become a pastor. And you'll find out that being a pastor is not exactly what people think it is. Or tonight, for example, we have a tremendous musical talent coming to minister to us tonight. I would imagine that at some point, Gordon Jansen did not think that he would be coming to churches this small to minister. And so it oftentimes, as you work in the kingdom of God, it doesn't always look exactly as you envision it's going to look. Paul is ministering here to the women, and yet he, I think that we can see in the passage that he's not going to become disillusioned. He's going to minister to those whom God has brought to him. You see, it's not only important that Paul is in the right place. He's in the right place. Remember, he wasn't supposed to go to Bithynia. It's not, and so he's gone to, to Philippi. But it's not only important that he's in the right place, but it's also important that he's doing the right thing. And so he ministers to the women that have come. Paul tell, or Luke tells us here that he sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Luke uses a word there that doesn't mean preach. It just means speak and conversation. So Paul's not preaching to them. He's conversing with them. Certainly, he's uh, building relationships with them, getting to know them, and certainly he's going to bring the conversation around to Jesus, but he's not preaching to them. He's conversing with them. And Jesus is flowing out of his conversation. Reminds me, by the way, of the woman at the well. When Jesus meets the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and he sits down and begins conversing with her. So, um, Paul is sitting here speaking to her. Um, or to the women, verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So this 
this lady Lydia is there. She is a um, seller of purple goods, which would have meant, uh, or purple cloth, purple goods, which would have meant that she would have been a successful business person. She would have been a person of means. She would have been a person who had status in the Philippian culture. Um, she would not have been, um, well, put it this way, she would not have been the normal woman of the culture of that day. She would have been a person some standing in the culture. And so she's there um, listening to us. She is, or listening to them. She's described as a worshiper of God, which meant that she was a Gentile, but she was a Gentile who worshiped the Jewish God, much like Cornelius. Cornelius, back in chapter 10, was described as a God-fearer. He was a Gentile, but he was a Gentile who worshiped the true God, which meant that he was seeking for the true God. Lydia is the same way. Paul has found those people in Philippi who are seeking God. And so she is a worshiper of God, and then the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Notice there in that phrase, notice the three-way cooperation that's taking place. Three people are involved in the conversion of Lydia. Paul is involved in the conversion of Lydia because he is speaking the gospel to Lydia. As he'll say to the Romans in Romans 10.17, nobody believes unless they hear the gospel. And so Paul is speaking the gospel to Lydia. Secondly, Lydia is involved because Lydia is making the effort to pay attention. She's there. She's listening. Nobody's converted against their will. She desires to hear the truth about God. Thirdly, we see that God Himself is involved because it is the Lord who has made her to pay attention. In other words, the Lord has opened her heart to receive what Paul has to say. Nobody is converted without that three-way cooperation taking place. Somebody has to speak the truth of the Gospel. The person has to be willing to hear it. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit has to be at work in their heart, preparing them to receive this. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, nobody understands the mind of God except the Spirit of God. And the natural man cannot understand the things of God. They're foolishness to the natural man. And so the Spirit of God has to reveal that. And that's what's happening here. This three-way conversion this three-way cooperation is taking place. Remember that when you are praying and ministering to your lost friends and family. Remember that um, when you get frustrated, why, why won't they pay attention? Why won't they hear? The Spirit of God has to be at work in their hearts. And so make that part of your prayer. That the Spirit of God would be at work in their hearts and cause them to hear and cause them to listen and cause them to receive what's being said. So this... this uh, this conversion takes place there. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, so she's converted, she believes, she's baptized. After she was baptized in her household as well. This is the first instance that we're going to see of, um, of a phenomenon that takes place in Acts that is called household conversion or household salvation. We see it happen very regularly in Acts. It's going to happen later on in the same chapter with the Philippian jailer. And the way it works is that it, it seems that the pattern is that when one person in a household is saved, the whole household is saved. Now, we understand that doesn't mean that the people in the household are saved by way of the salvation of the one person. But it does mean to us that it's a pattern that's a reliable, predictable pattern. That when one person in a household receives conversion, that oftentimes others will follow in that same household. So we see, we see the same sort of thing take place here. And her household as well. She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house 
and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So she prevails upon this team of four missionaries to stay in her house. She extends hospitality to them, in other words. And you know, this, this brings to mind something that I believe that many of us today in the church neglect. And that is what I would call the, the ministry of hospitality. The ministry of hospitality. It's something that's very prevalent in the book of Acts. Very prevalent in the New Testament as well. Um, the ministry of hospitality is something that I believe that many Christians today just don't get. Now, what I'm not saying is that we're inhospitable people. I'm not saying that at all. We're from the South. We, we understand Southern hospitality. But what I am saying is that I think that often we fail to understand the ministry of hospitality. We oftentimes will look at our homes in unbiblical ways. We will think upon or regard our homes in ways that are less than biblical. Oftentimes Christians, I think, will look upon their homes in the same way that the world looks upon their home, which is, my home is my castle, right? It's my place of sanctuary. It's the place that's, that's comfortable for me to live in. I have my clothes there. I eat there. I sleep there. Sometimes we socialize there and have friends over. And oftentimes, Christians will look upon their homes in the same way and not go any further than that. But I think that what the New Testament shows us, particularly in the book of Acts, is that the Christian is to understand their home as a place of ministry, as a place from which to do powerful and effective ministry. We're going to see this consistently through the Acts story. We've already seen it so far. From chapter 2, they were gathering together in their homes daily to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. From uh, chapter 9, the home of Simon the Tanner. From chapter 10, the uh, Gentile Pentecost comes in Cornelius' home. Um, chapter 12, the home of Mary, the mother of Mark. Chapter uh, 16, Lydia's home. A little bit later, the home of the Philippian jailer. Uh, chapter 18, the home of Aquila and Priscilla. We see this consistent story that the home, the Christian's home, is used as a powerful and effective place of ministry. And I think that that is what we have in large measure lost sight of today because we live within a church culture of facilities. We view the work of the church to take place within the church facility. We have fellowship halls, we have Sunday school rooms, we have sanctuaries, we have church facilities. And I believe that many of us have lulled ourselves into believing that that is where the work of the kingdom of God is to take place. And that has allowed us to view our homes in a deficient way. But the home, the Christian home, is one of the most powerful places in which to do the work of the kingdom of God. What better place to build relationships with lost people? What better place to share the gospel within the comfort and security of your, of your own home? What better place to, to open the Word of God and sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron? What better place than around your kitchen table with some cookies and coffee? And so, what the, what the story of Acts shows to us is that Christians really understood that their home was a place of ministry. Now, Part of that is because there were no church buildings at this time. But that, that doesn't at all negate the fact that we as Christians should view our home as a, as a place to do ministry. Let me challenge you to think upon your home in that way. 
as a place in which to build relationships with, with unbelievers, as a place in which to gather together and open God's Word, devote yourself to the teaching of the apostles. Let me challenge you in that way. I think this is the way Lydia is using her home here. Then we move on to verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit <clears throat> of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So here's this slave girl who is, as I picture it, she's like a circus freak show. She's like a sideshow for, for a circus. Remember, um, you may have read of days past when the circuses would have the freak shows? You know what I'm talking about? Where, where a person would be, maybe they had a physical deformity or um, maybe they were conjoined twins or something. And they were put on display for shock factor. Because people would pay in order to be shocked by the hideous condition of those people. What a horrible way to live. You've probably seen the elephant man. What a horrible way to live. I see this girl in much the same way. She is a slave to human beings. In fact, Luke tells us that more than one, she has more than one owner. So she must be a valuable slave. She has uh, business partners who own her. And she is their slave spiritually. She's probably their slave physically, sexually as well. And they put her on display because she's also the slave to demons. She's in double bondage. She's in double slavery. Slavery to demons and slavery to humans. And both of them are exploiting her. And so she goes around in this sort of spiritual display of fortune-telling, which, by the way, here's yet another instance in which the Bible tells us that Christians have nothing to do with fortune-telling. I continually am surprised by how many Christians will read the horoscopes and things like that. Christians have nothing to do with fortune-telling. And so this woman is a slave to the demons. She's a slave to humans as this object of display, as this source of exploitation. What a sad, sad life that she has. And so she is here um, with the spirit of divination telling the fortunes for gain by her own. Verse 17, she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So she is following them around. What she says is, True or false? It's true. These men do proclaim to us the, the Most High God. They're servants of the Most High God and they proclaim to us the way of salvation. Absolutely true. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. So, first of all, notice that Paul was annoyed. Isn't that, isn't that reassuring that the Apostle Paul could get annoyed? And isn't it wonderful that the Scriptures never paint an unrealistic picture to us of the people of God? The Scriptures always show a very earthly, very believable picture of the people of God, the people of God who have faults. In fact, just the last passage, we talked about how Paul was having so much trouble discerning the will of God. And so we're consistently shown pictures of God's people that have faults. I mean, Paul was annoyed Greatly annoyed, Luke says, by this, this slave girl. If you ever have a chance, probably most of us don't have this kind of time, but if you ever have a chance, I would encourage you to study world religions. And you'll find that Christianity is the only world religion 
that has this picture of its people. Every other world religion paints an absolutely unbelievable picture of the people of their God. Islam is probably the worst, uh, the worst perpetrator of that. Islam paints a picture of its heroes as just absolutely unbelievable, perfect people who have never done anything wrong. Really, they're like gods themselves. Christianity is the only world religion that has a truly earthly, realistic understanding of its people. Paul is greatly annoyed. She, this girl is following her around. I kind of picture it this way, that, that when Paul goes and sort of starts to uh, gather a crowd to preach to them, that maybe here's this girl behind him copying him. You know, Paul says, I proclaim to you the way of salvation is Jesus Christ. And she says, I proclaim to you the way of salvation is Jesus Christ. You know how annoying that can be. So she's annoying Paul for several days now. Paul turns and casts the, speaks to the Spirit and tells the Spirit to leave. To cast, he casts the Spirit out of her, the demon out of her. So, let me ask the question to us. Why would Paul do that? Why would Paul not just let the girl speak? Because after all, she was telling the truth. She had a reputation in Philippi for being a person who had a spirit of divination. So there were some people who thought that she could really tell their future. So that meant that to some people, she was actually validating what Paul was saying. Plus, she's probably drawing a crowd. So why would the missionaries not say to one another, listen, um, as long as she's telling the truth, we'll just let her go, let her be. Maybe as soon as she starts disrupting things, or maybe as soon as she starts lying about what we're saying, or misrepresenting what we're saying, then we'll deal with it then. Why did they not say that? And I believe that there's at least two reasons why um, Paul would not allow the girl with the demon to continue to talk. And I think the first reason has to do with the fact that Scripture does show us that it is only the partakers of the grace of God that are qualified to speak of the grace of God. Only the participants in the Gospel are qualified to speak of the Gospel. We see this in um, God's use of angels. You know, God doesn't use angels to preach the Gospel. Instead, angels come and get Philip to take Philip over to the Ethiopian eunuch so Philip can tell them a the Gospel. Or angels come and get Peter and take Peter over to Cornelius so Peter can tell Cornelius the Gospel. God never uses angels to preach the Gospel because angels aren't participants in the Gospel. And so that's one reason that I see that Paul would have reason to cast the demon out. The other reason, I think this is probably the main one, has to do not so much with what the girl is saying, but the source of what she's saying. Because Scripture teaches us that, um, that if the source has proven to be untrustworthy, then all of what the source says should be jettisoned. Right? Scripture shows us this in, uh, in a number of different places. For example... Think back to the Gospels. Think of how often it was that Jesus was about to cast a demon out of somebody and what did the demon do? I recognize you. You're the Son of the Most High God. What did Jesus always say? Shut up. Silence. You are not allowed to speak. It makes no difference what you're saying. You're not allowed to speak. Also, I think that, that we see evidence of this same sort of thing elsewhere. We, we turn over to, for, for example, 1 John 4. And John tells us there that the Christian is to discern the Spirit, whether the Spirit is from God 
of whether the Spirit is from Satan. And once we discern where the Spirit comes from, if the Spirit is not from God, we don't listen to anything that they're saying. If the Spirit is, is from, or I'm sorry, yeah, if the Spirit is not from God, if the Spirit is from Satan, we don't listen to anything that the Spirit is saying. And so what that's showing us, I think, is that it really doesn't matter what the girl was saying. What matters is the source of what was being said. Let me, let me flesh this out a little bit more. Uh, the Puritan William Bates lived uh, 17th century. William Bates wrote about this, and he said this, The devil will tell you 100 truths in order to get you to believe one lie. And I think he's right there. That, that the demons have no problem with you believing a whole lot of truth. All they need you to believe is one lie. And so they'll tell you a whole lot of truths in order to get you to believe one lie. Think of the, of, uh, of the serpent and Eve. The serpent didn't have a whole laundry list of lies that he wanted Eve to believe. He just had one. Are you sure that God had your best interests in mind? That's all he needed Eve to believe. And so... Demons, the forces of darkness, are, are very much content with us believing a whole lot of truth as long as they can slip one lie in there for us. And so, the, the message of Scripture is, if we hear teaching that evidences to us that it is not from God, we are to discount all of it, including the source, including the messenger. Let me take us to one other place in Scripture that will kind of flesh this out, and then I'm going to apply it to your life. Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians, Paul is writing to the churches in Derby and Lystra, and he's writing the whole point of Galatians is this issue of the Judaizers. Remember the Judaizers? We've talked about them in chapter 15. The Judaizers, they believed that Jesus was the Savior of all men, but He was the Jewish Savior. And so he was only, his salvation was only valid for Jews. And so in order, to be, um, uh, in order to be saved by Jesus, you had to become a Jew. So they were teaching that you're sinners, everybody's sinners, everybody's in need of salvation, God loves you, wants you to be saved. There's only salvation in Jesus Christ, but you need to become a Jew in order to receive this, right? Now, was a whole, everything that was going on in chapter 15, the church settled the issue and they said, no. Salvation is by grace and grace alone. And so there are no works that needed to be added to that. As Peter said, we're saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. No one needs to be circumcised on top of that. And so they, they established that. Now, fast forward to Galatians. By the time we get to Paul's letter to the Galatians, these Judaizers, not only did they not accept the ruling of the church, they've gone way down that path. And now they're going, they're going everywhere. They've gone to the churches in Galatia. They've caused all kinds of trouble teaching the Galatians again what is contradictory to the apostles' teaching. They're saying you must be saved by the Jewish Messiah as a Jew. And so you must be circumcised and submit to the law. So now, put that together. We will read from uh, Galatians chapter 1, look at verse 6. Speaking of this false teaching, Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, 
So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul says this, if someone preaches to you a gospel that is directly contradictory to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you do not pick and choose what you want to believe about what he says. You reject everything, including the messenger. Now let me apply this to our lives, and this is going to hurt a little bit. One thing that I hear a lot of Christians doing is watching or listening Christian radio, Christian television, to people whose, who parts of their message directly contradict the message of grace. And I often hear Christians say this. Well, I know they're sort of wacky, but they have a lot of good things to say. And so I can, I can hear the good things that they say, and I can filter out the things that are wrong. Not according to Galatians 1. Galatians 1 tells us that when somebody preaches a gospel that is directly contradictory to the clear teaching of Scripture, we not only reject that part of what they say, we reject everything. Again, Paul did not cast the demon out of the woman because he was telling so many lies. He cast the demon out of the woman because the source was untrustworthy. Let me uh, continue to flesh this out with another example. A few months back, a friend of mine, who's also a pastor, was recommending to me a book that he suggested that I read. And this book was written by a man by the name of Rob Bell. You may be familiar with Rob Bell. Rob Bell is one of those internationally recognized Christians. Only Rob Bell has gone off the reservation. A few years ago, Rob Bell started to teach and preach and write about um, a doctrine that denies the existence of hell. Rob Bell teaches that a loving God would not send anybody to hell. Yes, there's salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Yes, we're all sinners in need of salvation. Yes, there is a wonderful heaven prepared for us, etc., 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 etc. But God is not a God who created a hell to send people to. And so my friend was recommending to me a book by Rob Bell, to which I said... I don't think so. Rob Bell teaches this. To which he replied, and he tried to educate me, I guess, to say, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, he's wrong about that, but he has a lot of good things to say. And then he tries to school me on, we as Christians, we need to be discerning. We need to know how to re-broaden our minds and discern what's truth and what's not true. Uh-uh. Not according to Galatians 1. Not according to 1 John 4. Not according to Acts 15. If somebody teaches or preaches a message that is in direct contradiction to the clear teachings of Scripture, all of their message is to be discarded. Please understand what I'm saying. I'm not talking about secondary differences on things which Scripture is not clear about. Let's face it, there are things that are secondary to salvation that Scripture is less than clear about. A great example, you all know what I'm talking about, Speaking in tongues. Scripture, you know what, is less than clear about whether or not Christians should be speaking in tongues. And different Christians have been led to different conclusions about that, but that's secondary to salvation, and Scripture's not clear about that. And so there's room for differences. I'm not talking about those differences. 
I'm talking about when somebody's message directly contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture. Scripture shows us that all of their message is to be discarded. Let me give another example. And you'll begin to see just how prevalent and how important this is for our lives. A few years back, one of our Sunday school classes was working through a book that was written by a very well-known, very well-recognized Christian. Everybody in this room would recognize the name of this person. This person said a lot of good things, but this person was teaching in this particular book some doctrines that were directly contradictory to the clear teachings of Scripture. I made issue with that, and here's what I was told. Well, we're all adults. We can all decide what we want to believe and what we don't want to believe, and we know that those things probably aren't true, and so, but we like the good things that this person is saying. Uh-uh. Not according to Galatians 1, not according to 1 John 4, not according to Acts 16. Paul did not cast the demon out because the demon was telling so many lies. Paul cast the demon out because sooner or later the demon would tell a lie. And it didn't matter how many truths the demon had told before then. When we find someone whose message is directly contradictory to the clear teachings of Scripture, then that means we disregard the messenger. If someone preaches from this pulpit a message that is contradictory to the clear teachings of Scripture, we do not pick and choose what we like to listen to. If someone teaches a Sunday school class, if somebody uh, gives you a book, if somebody gives you teaching, that parts of it are in clear contradiction to the clear teachings of Scripture, that means that we discard the whole thing. One more example. Just again, this is so prevalent, so prevalent, so relevant to our lives today. Just a few weeks ago, we were having a conversation. I believe you were part of that conversation, which we're talking about the local Christian radio station and how this teacher on that, on that station was, well, it was actually the same heresy as Rob Bell. He was teaching that there's no such thing as hell. A loving God doesn't send people to hell. Folks, is that foundational? Is it absolutely foundational that God is a God who punishes sin? Is it absolutely foundational that Jesus Christ Himself taught us that there is an eternal hell awaiting those who are outside of His redemption? Is it problematic to deny what Jesus Christ Himself said? Is it problematic to think of a God who does not punish sin when He clearly has said that He does? Folks, I submit to you that when we come across teaching like that, we are not, the Scriptures do not allow us to be in a position to say, well, I like this part of what He has to say, but I'm not really buying that part, so I just won't listen to that. That is how the enemy works. Again, Satan didn't need Eve to believe a whole long list of lies about God. He only needed her to believe one, which she did. So Paul here cast the demon out of the girl, not because what she's saying was wrong, but because the source could not be trusted. Then we move on to verse 19. I'm uh, realizing now, I'd intended to make it through chapter 16, and it's not going to happen. Um, so we're going to leave, we'll leave the Philippian jailer part for next week. But let's, let's try to get through verse 24. But when our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. You notice what, what it was that set them off. What set them off was their loss of profit, their loss of gain, their loss of power. They didn't care about the girl. Here's a demon-oppressed girl. 
who has been set free from her bondage to demons, and they could care less. All they care about is that their money and their power is gone. Reminds us, doesn't it, of the, of the healing miracles of Jesus? He would heal the man with the withered hand. He would, he would restore sight to the man born blind. He would uh, restore the paralytic. And nobody cared. The, the Pharisees didn't care. All they cared about, not the person, they cared that Jesus was taking away their power, taking away their authority. That's what, that's what really irked them. And you know, we live in the same world today, don't we? Folks, this is why the world does and always will hate us. Sometimes we wonder, why is it that our world is so tolerant of every message but ours? The world is so tolerant of every religion except ours, and they hate us. Why? Because ours is the only message that frees people from the bondage of sin. And sin is the means by which the power of darkness has its, has its power and authority over people. And ours is the only message that sets people free from that. And that's why they'll always say, as long as your message sets people free from sin, you will be hated by the world. There's, there's no compromise there. And so we see the same sort of thing. By the way, I was reading an article this past week, which just reminded me. I was reading an article this week about the church in China. How the church in China for about six decades now has been completely underground, completely persecuted. And yet, many people today, by conservative estimates, people believe that there are more than 100 million Chinese Christians that meet together weekly, illegally, to worship Jesus. And so the persecuted church in China has exploded. But I was just reading this past week about how the Chinese government is doubling down, doubling down, folks, on the persecution of Chinese Christians. And this article went on to say, it went on to quote the Chinese government to say, we believe them to be a political threat. And that's why. Because they're a threat to their power. And so, this is what gets them all worked up because their, their source of income is gone, their power is gone. Verse 20, And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Remember, this is a Roman colony. They're Roman citizens. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off and gave them order, gave orders to beat them with rods. So the magistrates, they're like the police. Um, the word in Latin um, was lictor. You may have heard of lictors before. Um, the lictor was one who um, clunked you on the head if you got out of line or beat you up if you got out of line, um, which is, by the way, where we get our phrase, take your licks. You ever heard that phrase, take your licks? It comes from that, because the lictor was the one who would beat you up. Um, so he uh, gave orders for the magistrates to tear their garments off and beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. The stocks, we'll talk about this next week, the stocks made it impossible for them to be comfortable. Plus the open wounds on their back made it impossible for them to lie down. So we're going to find at midnight they're still awake and singing. We'll look at that next week. But just, I'll close with this. Notice how often it is now that Paul has suffered for the sake of the gospel. He suffered in Damascus. He suffered in Lystra. And now he suffered in Philippi.